Blog Talk Radio. This is BC Radio Live with Philip and Eric. Live online at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Aloha. Welcome to March 2008 and welcome to BC Radio Live. Tonight on the show, singer and actress, the original 1988 pop princess, Deborah Gibson. Find out what she's doing now and where you can find her online and in person. We will also talk with author John Brockett, who has written Wikipedia The Missing Manual, which was published earlier this year. Finally, we'll talk with Carlo Wolf, most recent book of Cleveland Rock and Roll Memories. He has previously co-edited the Encyclopedia of Record Producers with his co-host, Radio Live, Eric Olson. The chat room is now open blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio and the live video feed is now running. I am Philip Wynn, Chief Geek at BC Magazine and I am joined tonight by Eric Olson, founder and publisher of BC Magazine as well as editor of the aforementioned Encyclopedia of Record Producers. Hi Eric. Hello Philip, how are you? I am great. Uh, Also with us tonight is Lisa McKay, Executive Editor of BC Magazine. Welcome Lisa. Hey, Philip. How are you? I'm still great. Spring is here. uh, Spring has just about sprung. But it won't stay. Well, probably not, but I'm always kind of excited when it shows its head for the first time. Oh, I know. Yeah, we had the mid-60s day uh, a couple days ago, or it seems like a couple days ago. And then, uh, man, winter returned with a vengeance. We're in the middle of that ice stuff. It's it's actually very uh, visually striking because everything is coated in ice. So, you know, you have the trees and the bushes and everything, and it looks neat, but it is very slippery and dangerous, and people are falling all over themselves all over the place. And So I don't enjoy that aspect of it. It, it, Spring could have stuck around a few days more, uh, in in my opinion. But, yeah, having that day was nice. Here in Dallas, we've been having more warm than cold, but a few days ago, uh, in fact, two days ago, we actually had a very unusual thing for us in Dallas. We had snow. Wow. It actually, uh, yeah, snow showed up. It uh, sat on the ground for a night or so and melted by the time the next morning rolled around everywhere except, of course, off of my windshield. <laughs> and then uh, later that day, it got up to about 70 degrees, so that's about typical for Dallas, I think. Well, you, at least you knew you had that part coming, you know, because uh, <laughs> we... Right. We don't get that luxury this time of year uh, around here, yeah. Well, we have snow on top of the ice. The ice came yesterday, and then it snowed last night. So we have snow on top of this very treacherous layer of of, uh, ice down there. I saw pictures from the, um, uh, I guess yesterday morning, because, of course, they were blanketing the state, you know, for the elections. And uh, I saw the snow. It It was very unusual. Yeah, that's right. Actually, uh, Eric, you're in Ohio, and I'm here in Texas. We did just have some pretty big uh, primary and caucuses in both of our states. Yeah, once again, the the pendulum has swung. You know, uh, every time they've <laughs> counted Hillary out, she's made a comeback. You gotta you gotta give it to the family, man. That's a that's a family of uh, of comebacks. Although, you know, she really didn't because of the way the Democrats do it. It's really interesting to see how. What an enormous difference the party rules are making now. You know, you got McCain, who's already wrapped it up. 
because of all the winner take all. I think all the Republican ones are winner take all. Is that true? No, but but about like two thirds or so, I think. Okay, and then the the Democratic it's uh, are they all proportional? Uh, all but I believe two. Okay. So yeah, huge, huge, huge shift. Yeah. So so you know what what you're seeing is is when you have two strong front runners, it, it almost doesn't matter who wins, you know, when, right. when the difference is a few percentage points. I mean, sure, it's nice to say I won, but, uh, you know, the difference may be just a few delegates. Uh, I think it was Nevada, in fact, where Hillary Clinton technically won the popular vote in Nevada, and yet Barack Obama came away with one more delegate than she did. Was that because That's of superdelegates, or...? No, no, that was actually because of the way the proportional representation uh, works in that state. He won more counties, I even though see. he ended up with fewer overall votes. And there, the delegates were assigned per county or per district, I guess. It's, it's really interesting, though, to think about, you know, is, does that reflect some sort of philosophical difference? You know, are the Republicans cutthroat sharks, winner take all? <laughs> and the Democrats are uh, touchy-feely. No, let's share. We're uh, here at the Crunchy Daycare. Let's share. Well, let, let's see how sharing uh, Senators Clinton and Obama feel uh, in, in the next few months before we make too much I, It looks like it, it's going to probably go all the way to the convention. It's so, yep. you know, everything that both parties have done now for, for how many years, 20 years, 30 years, has been uh, to, to try to speed up the process, to have, uh, to have the, the nominee declared as early as possible so they can begin bashing the opposite party opponent as early as possible, and it has utterly failed them this time. But, you know, th it's interesting. This is the first time it's been interesting in yeah. a long, long time. And I think I'll tell you what, let's, let's, let's get to the show. Well, yeah. Do, has, has Deborah We have actually it? a really, really exciting show, so <laughs> let's jump in. Uh, I'm in my mid-30s, and I suspect most people my age, at least, remember Debbie Gibson, uh, her song, Foolish Beat, reached number one in 1988, while three other songs from her debut, including uh, my personal favorite, Only in My Dreams. God, mine too! Should I admit that? I'm not sure I should. No, no, that's a great song, man. <laughs> well, that also I have a story about it. Well, uh, Deborah Gibson now has starred on Broadway in Les Mis, in Beauty and the Beast, in Cabaret. She's toured the stage from London to Boston, uh, many different roles. Uh, she will be appearing for three weeks in May in Atlantic City doing pop on Broadway, singing songs from her uh, widely varied career. It is actually a great pleasure to feature Deborah Gibson on BC Radio Live. Welcome, Deborah. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am funky, fresh, and swell. <laughs> you know, swell is one of my all-time favorite words. Mine, too. Now, how come you don't sound like you're from Brooklyn? Yo, because I did a lot of TV commercials, and you can't talk like this. Ah. products in middle America, you know what I'm talking about. You had it beaten out of you. But really, I was from Long Island, and we talked like this. I see. Yeah, I was born in Brooklyn. So the bio is, uh, you know. Well, born in Brooklyn, raised in Long Island. So. I see. I but yes. No, you, you, have, you have the perfect uh, media personality voice. Sans accent. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I don't think we mentioned uh, the total pop star. Uh, so how is that going? That seems to be a, a, an interesting, and you seem to have fun on there. I was watching some of the segments. <laughs> we do have fun. Hey, look, we all want to be judges and critics, don't we? You know, we're all, we all want to pretend like we know what the heck we're talking about. The truth of the matter is no one knows what's going to be a hit, but I think that you know, between Andrew Van Flee, who worked on Michael Bublé's debut album, you got Joey Lawrence, who's 
been in the business, I think, even slightly longer than me, and then I've been in the business since I was a kid. And so, you know, I think we've learned a thing or two along the way, and we can kind of help mentor and guide. And, you know, it's it's amazing when you see raw talent. And this is this is really raw talent because um, a lot of people people um, send videos and they just uh, – by the way, if I sound out of breath, I just had to run up 40 steps to my house, run back down, leave something in the mailbox for someone and run back up. I was like, oh, my God, it's 5.58. So we must be in good shape. Sorry, I'm winded. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. I had a friend who does voiceovers who was like, do you have any of that throat spray? I've got this, like, throat spray for dryness, so I had to go and do that. Anyway, so um, what was I saying? Total pop star, yes. Total pop star. So a lot of people upload a video, and it's like them singing a cappella in their house, and their little brother is running around in the background, and the smoke alarm battery hasn't been changed, and it's beeping in the background, and you know, real talent cuts through all of that, so it's been really a blast to see that come through. Even mom with a vacuum cleaner? We haven't had that yet. Oh, we did have this woman on. I don't know if you saw this one. This woman, we said, what do you do kind of for your realtor? She was a little bit older, shall we say, and um, she had this like kind of like headset microphone on, and we're like, well, what do you do, you know, what do you do for a living to earn a paycheck? And she was like, I'm a telephone actress. Telephone <laughs> out of Las Vegas. <laughs> so, so she pretends to be a telephone? Sorry, say again? She pretends to be a telephone? Yes, that's exactly what she does. No, so she's like a, a, a um, she provides aids via the phone? I, I mean aid via the phone? Yes, I guess so. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> so yes, we've had, we've had all, don't want to know more. We've had all kinds of people that, yeah, that, that have sent videos, but... It's great. I mean, you've got kids, you've got adults, you've got people that might be too old for like an American Idol, but you're not too old for us, so come on. How did all this come about? It's an online, let's make sure people know about it, where they can find it. it is, the, the URL is totalpopstar.com, is it not? Yep, yep. Um, basically, I mean, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't my creation. I got approached to be a judge on it. And, it, you know, I've always done things in my career because they sound like fun. If they, if they feel like work... Forget it. You know what I mean? It's, I've, I've been lucky enough to be able to base all my decisions on, well, is this something that my heart will really be in? And it was. And so that's really how it came to me. But, I mean, I think the idea just came about because, you know, obviously talent searches are huge. American Idol's huge. But not everyone can make it to one of the five cities and line up with 8,000 people. And, you know, people are pretty obsessed with YouTube. And this is a way for anybody anywhere in the entire world to get a, to get a legitimate shot. It's scaled down a tad from American Idol. Oh, you think? Uh, well, maybe. <laughs> How often you guys get together? It looks like the judges are actually together conferring and all that, unless it's amazing technology. Uh, no, we are really together. We get together, uh, God, it's like every, every month or so, pretty much. And we oh, watch okay. a round of videos, shoot a few shows. I see. I yeah. See. Very clever. Well, it looks like it's fun, and... Uh, you know, the, what I heard, the advice is good and is, is... We try to be constructive, you know. I mean, I think that the thing is, obviously, again, on television, you have to speak in sound bites and they want drama. We legitimately just want to be constructive and people can take the criticism and actually resubmit a video having put to use what we've, what, what we've commented on. And I think that's kind of a cool thing, too. It makes it very interactive. It's not like you've got one shot and you're out. You know, it's... it's um, you know, it's kind of like mentoring people almost more than judging them. That's right. Cool. Yeah. Well, I, it, uh, there certainly is a place for that, and I think that's 
I think it's super. Now, does that tie in? Uh, there seems to be a similar theme with your camp electric youth. How did that go? That was well, coincidentally, they were kind of. Ha- I mean, actually, I was forming my camp even before I was approached about this. So, yeah, it seems like this is a time period in my life where I feel like doing some of this mentoring. Um, you know, being in that kind of mentor role. Um, I've been talking about doing a camp for a while, and I'm lucky enough to always be busy performing. And I just decided, you know what, I'm going to set this summer aside to do this. And um, you know, I have nieces and nephews, and they all sing and dance and act, and they go to summer camps. And I have such great teachers myself out here in the world of acting and dance and, and voice. And I just thought, you know, a lot of camps are very scammy, and they're they're all about like how much money can we get, and we're going to sell people DVDs and tickets to the final show. And uh, I wanted to give kids legitimate training, and um, we've just got some of the best teachers. I mean, Howard Fine has coached Academy Award winners. He's never coached children before. Um, so this is a, like a very rare opportunity for kids to study with him. Um, I mean, I, I got to witness going to an Oscar party with him and Forrest Whitaker saying, Howard Fine, oh, my God, I've heard so much about you. I mean, he's, you know, a really incredible A-list teacher. Cynthia Bain is a huge children's teacher. She gets flown out to sets all the time to coach kids in movies and, and TV shows. And so, you know, and I feel like in the day and age where we're witnessing a lot of teen stars going crazy, I've been able to survive all that, and I feel like, you know, it's not by accident. I've developed a lot of life skills and techniques for dealing with the madness of showbiz, and I kind of want to pass some of that along as well. Well, that is an excellent point. My wife writes our, our uh, celebrity site, and, man, I mean, she she's a mother, and actually she's about your age, and mm-hmm. and her, her partner is, is similar, and she's a mother. And they kind of approach it from that standpoint, you know, from a kind of a more of a middle American, you know, mom perspective. And and the recurring themes are, what is wrong with these people? You know, they just know. keep freaking out. They can't keep, uh, you know, they seem to get a little bit of, uh, if someone takes the, the, the lid off a little, loosens the clamps, like what seems to happen with Brittany. You know, she was apparently very tightly controlled. The lid comes off a little. She she loses her mind. It's right. crazy. How did how did you avoid that? Because I mean, here you were at sixteen. You were a huge major star. Just boom, exploded on the scene. And by the way, yes, uh, I digress for a moment. Yes. Uh, when I I'm a uh, I was a DJ for years and years and years, uh, live and and radio. And uh-huh. I started a in the late '90s, so around ten years ago. I started an '80s night at a real big club. I'm in. Northeast Ohio in the Cleveland uh-huh. area, and the absolutely most popular song in the late '90s from the '80s was Debbie Gibson's "Only in My Dream." I love that. Uh uh. Uh-uh. It's fun because you know there were some really great remixes done on that that record when it came out, and it was like the number one club record back then. And you know, it's funny because now it would never. I mean, in a regular club, it's like you know, melody doesn't even count, of course. So it was cool that I got to do that in the time where, even though it was a remix, it was still the song. The body of the song was still there. So that's cool for me to hear. It is a great song, and it holds up. I just listened to it, the single version, of course, the forty-five. And I, I, I don't know. If, I don't completely agree that it's only a great melody and vocal and all that. The percussion is really strong. It oh has no, a I love the percussion. No, I just meant that nowadays it's like the remixes aren't as structured as they want they were back then. Like oh. Little Louis Vega is an art. You know, he did that remix. He's an artist. The way he pieced together the sections of that song and the way it flowed, right. I think, is why people want to hear it on a dance floor. So oh, I fully agree with you. There are hooks in the percussion. There are hooks in the background vocals. You know, and Fred Zarr produced that record and. 
all due credit to them with that stuff because it's it definitely was hooky in many many ways. It's a it's a classic. I re- Thank you. I really I really I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. Now back to you. How how did you weather all of that so well? Obviously, well, you know, you just said, you just said something interesting. You said you know that that the, these other you know the Britneys and whoever were very tightly controlled. I was never con- I was I was kind of raised to be my own person, and I always made my own decisions, and so I never had some any like reason to rebel or anything. It was just. A, I was always in this for the music and the performing, and I was never in it for, like, what people now consider fringe benefits, which makes me laugh because, you know, artists go to the Grammys for the gift suites. I'm like, the the perk of being at the Grammys is being at the Grammys. <laughs> right. Like, look at these artists. Listen to these artists. Oh, my God, you get to, you know. So I think that just everything is off kilter now. Everybody's focus is in the wrong place. People are focused on on fashion and fame and money and and media and not on the not on the craft and the craft is what's going to sustain you for years and years and years well i also have to congratulate you because you've had uh you know what two three careers now and yeah, i've lost count <laughs> i mean you've really been no, able you count to my figure skating career on skating with celebrities that's four you were you were adorable there i was robbed no i you know what i was never very good and whatever you were lying i had a ball i i just had never taken a lesson in my life and decided to try at age 34 which is pretty funny and you have people on the show like oh i need to brush up on my axle i'm like axle i'm still wearing <laughs> a skate backwards what are you talking about but anyway you were a yeah, swan you were a swan Oh, thank you. We weren't me and Kurt Browning. We were not scandalous enough for reality TV either. Pretty funny. I learned very quickly. Like, I don't know if this reality TV thing is for me because they would come to us and be like, "Can't you guys like have a little more of an angle?" We're like, "But we don't have an angle." Like, Kurt's happily married. I don't want to bust that up. I'm me. I just want to skate and have fun. And they were like, oh, okay. <laughs> and you're out. <laughs> you mean that goes on behind the scenes? Yeah, could you imagine? I'm scandalized. I know. I couldn't believe it myself. Um, but, yeah, there's been a lot of um, transitions. But, you know, the funny thing about my career is I never sat around plotting and planning like, okay, I'm going to, you know, make the Because I remember when I went into Les Mis, a lot of people said, great career move. And I was like, what's a career move? Is that what that was? It was just what I felt like doing next because I had always loved theater as a kid and always done theater. And so I think when you, you know, when you go with your gut, you can keep going and going and going. I think when people try to strategize too much, it, it goes awry. Do you or have you approached the musical theater, which, which you know, you've done so much of and, and seem to have really had a lot of success? I mean, you know, all the way to the top, to, all the way to Broadway with mm-hmm. it. That's not something you just, you know, step into casually. Um, do you approach that differently than you did, or, or assuming you will do it in the future too, from your pop career? Is it a different? Um, yes and no. I mean, it's interesting because I perform. I do concerts all the time. I'm doing something this weekend, and it's like I do my concerts and what I'm doing at Harris in May. It's half Broadway, half pop. And I do remember there was a moment in time. Actually, I was doing Les Mis, and I had to go off and do a concert in Atlantic City. Um, that I was already committed to, and to me it felt like this big, like, shifting gears. Oh, my God, I'm using this part of my voice. Now I'm going to have to use that part of my voice, and will singing pop ruin my theater voice, and will singing theater ruin my pop? And now I literally go from all that jazz from Chicago right into Shake Your Love like it's nothing. So it took me, like, it took me a lot of years to be able to figure that out. But back then it was like, yeah, there was a different approach because – the more legit singing requires more of like a stillness and more of a connectedness in your body and more of a breath control thing, whereas 
you know, when I was doing like hyper pop concerts, that would all take care of itself. I'd get out there, I'd start jumping around, the air was flowing, the notes were coming out. I didn't really have to overthink it. Um, so in theater, it was definitely a different energy, and I'm a very hyper person. So in theater, you have to be very, con- like, you know, if I, if I was going into a five-show week and on Broadway, which is when you're doing a Friday night, two shows Saturday, two shows Sunday, I'd always go to a yoga class Saturday morning to kind of set myself up for the weekend to really get that groundedness. So it's, yeah, it, it is a little different. Interesting. It's, uh, you've, uh, you know, you're uh, an excellent example that people can look up to. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised, you know, that, that more don't, but uh, don't emulate your approach and the fact that you, you know, clear in talking to you, not just looking, you know, to the bio and whatnot, but you, you really do seem to be very centered, very grounded, and uh, seem to be doing it for the right reasons. And, uh, you know, you. clearly that... Uh, that yields the results. I'll, I'll tell you, Eric. I'll, I'll say I think more people don't emulate her approach because they don't have the ability. Oh, uh, this is a great ego boost for me tonight. <laughs> well, earlier there was a, there That's was a, a good comparison. Point. You know, why, why don't, say, the, the Britneys and the, the other pop songstresses of today emulate you? It's, well, it's you know what's interesting? I think, I think that, like, honestly, I don't think I'm the greatest singer in the world. I don't think I'm the greatest actress in the world. But I work really hard consistently, and I think that ultimately that pays off. And I think, you know, I look at clips of Britney from when she was on Star Search at like 12 years old or whatever. She had a big voice. And I think what happened was they put the focus on the dancing, and it's a muscle. It's like if you don't continue training your voice and, you know, and growing it, it's not going to take care of itself. And I think a lot of times when the focus becomes on the dancing, then comes the lip syncing, then comes the, oh, I can stay out all night because I don't have a voice to protect. I don't have to protect my voice. Right. And I think that singers, like you look at a Celine Dion, who's always lived a very like normal, disciplined life, because when you're singing like that, you have to. You know, It's such an instrument that, that requires protecting and maintenance, and it's like being an Olympic athlete in a way to protect a voice. So I've always just appreciated whatever gift I had and protected it. I don't think I'm necessarily the greatest. I'm always studying and learning and have my good vocal days and bad vocal days. But, you know, I think that there's a work ethic that I learned in theater as a kid. And, again, going back to the camp, that's kind of what I want to try to get out there a little bit because, again, kids are only getting messages right now from the media, and those messages are not about work ethic. Well, it's also worth noting, too, I mean, I, I do appreciate what you're saying about the voice, but it's worth noting that you were at 16, at 17, you were also writing your own stuff, you were producing your own things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't just voice and dance. I mean, you really you really were working hard from beginning to end in the process, and I, and I don't... Yeah, I love the process. I'm a freak. Like, I listen to records now, and I'm like, oh, my God, I remember that string line and where I was when I came up with that horn part. Like, it's, I just love the piecing together of music, because I always remember listening to the radio and getting that it was all of these components put together, and I thought, if I knew what the buttons did in the studio, I could put this together, you know, so I've always loved that process a lot. Um, Well, and you're still writing, right? Don't you have two shows that you're working on? Yeah, yeah, I've written two musicals, and uh, the second one we're um, workshopping soon. It's called The Flunky. I wrote it with Jimmy Van Patten, um, Dick Van Patten's son. And, uh, yeah, no, I write all the time. I, I've just written a bunch of new stuff. Um, I keep saying I want my Tina Turner comeback moment. You know, she came out with What's Love Got to Do With It when she was, like, 42 years old. But right. I still have five more years. <laughs> That's how I look at it. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I, I still I love writing. You know, I hear melodies in my head constantly and write them down. And, yeah, it's fun. It's fun to create something from nothing. It's just a fun thing, whether 
whether people hear it or not, I love doing it just because I love doing it. And then, you know, the icing on the cake is when people embrace it. That's very cool. That you, you never get tired of that. Like I sing the old hits. Like people will say, "Oh, do you sing?" I'm, I'll be singing Electric Youth till I'm 82. <laughs> I don't care because give the people what they want. They made it a hit, and it's always fun to see people get get a charge out of watching you sing your original song. You know, it's, it's cool. I, I'm guessing you're able to be as as uh, relaxed with that as you are because you have been able to maintain a career. You know, I mean, if you this hadn't, is true. if I like hadn't done anything since Electric Youth, you're right. I might be a little bit. Yeah, you'd it'd be a little sketchy. <laughs> I bet. You know, God, not again. You know, but there's people who've had wonderful careers who who won't do the older stuff. Like you always hear about Van Morrison. You know, he's all flinty, crotchety guy. You know, I always remember hearing about David Cassidy, and I think that's because um, I think that's because those songs were imposed on him, and they weren't really him. So now he's kind of like, all right, you know. Well, that's a good point too. Yeah, yeah. Your, yours has been a holistic approach. Yeah, because they're me and they're mine. They'll they'll always be mine, and you know. I can do certain songs kind of in a tongue-in-cheek way, and then there are ballads where I'll bring a couple on stage who've been together 50 years and sing them Lost in Your Eyes, and suddenly it's not the puppy puppy love version of Lost in Your Eyes. It's a different thing. And so, yeah, it's fun. It's fun growing, and, you know, the music kind of takes on different meanings at different times, and it's, it's cool. Well, Deborah well, Gibson will be appearing at Harrah's in Atlantic City May 4th through 24th. Uh, a three-week engagement, singing old and new songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, tickets are on sale now. Please visit Deborah-Gibson.com. That's uh, Deborah with an H-Gibson.com for more details on that engagement, as well as much more about what she's been doing. We've really, I think, only kind of barely touched on a lot of things that, that you've been up to over the last few years. That's okay, though. We, we, I think we filled, you filled in the blanks pretty good. Well, when did you go. become Deborah, by the way? Actually, that was my name always. This is really funny. They, the record company wanted to change my name to like a million different things. And a lot of it w- sounded very gimmicky and very like one-hit wonder-ish. You know, Debbie G or just Deborah or whatever. And um, they were coming up with new last names. By the time I came around to Debbie Gibson, I went, fine, I'll take it, even though I spent my entire childhood trying to make people not call me Debbie. Oh. So I was really always Deborah, and it just never felt right because the very first time I ever introduced myself as Debbie was after my record came out, and it felt very fabricated to me. And eventually, when theater became more of a priority in my life, I just said, eh, you know what, it's not as much of like a marketing issue anymore, so I would really just be more comfortable having people call me by my name. And it was as simple as that. So it was never meant to be a big, like, I am a grown-up now, and it's Deborah. It's just... People, uh, on the contrary, my friends and family were like, who's Debbie? Where'd that come from? <laughs> we thought you hated that. <laughs> so, well, thank you, know. you very much for spending time with us tonight, Deborah. Thank you. Well, uh, shifting gears a little bit, uh, Wikipedia is the user-edited encyclopedia that has taken the world by storm. Loved by many, uh, hated by some, uh, there is still no question that Wikipedia has had a huge impact on the way we view even the Internet. Anybody who spent time at Wikipedia knows there's far more going on behind the scenes than is immediately obvious and that things can be complicated, especially once you try to edit something. John Broughton hopes to change some of that. His book is Wikipedia, The Missing Manual, and it will tell you everything you need to know about being an editor of Wikipedia, and you, too, can be an editor. Welcome Great. to the show, John. Thank you. Everything in um, 20 minutes or less. 
<laughs> well, yeah, because, you know, we were talking to Deborah Gibson. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Hard act to follow. Yeah, it, she is. Indeed. Well, you're a, you're a well-established editor at Wikipedia. You've actually, I think, had more than 15,000 edits to your name before you even published the book, and it's been out for almost two months now, so I suppose you've had a few more since then. A few more. I'm, I'm not really spending as much time editing as I was before I started writing the book. Mm. One of the grand ironies, is it not? You know, um, you really need a passion, something that you're really interested in when you're editing to sort of keep you going. And my interest for the last year has been primarily on the index and then the book. And the index isn't quite finished, the book is. So, yeah, there's a little irony. So you're you, you're sort of moved moved on in your mind uh, in some ways. Tell us about the index. That's a really interesting, um, uh, you know, aspect of what you're doing as well. Did that precede the book? Were you working on that first? Yeah, I started that November of 2006. I, I'd gotten frustrated because all these other experienced editors, whenever there's a question, they'd pop up. Oh, so, well, go look at this page. Go look at that page, and I go. How did he know that? How did she know that? So I started recording them and tracking them and adding them to a list. Actually, I started as a user's manual, but that turned out to be way too complicated because I couldn't figure out how to organize it. It was like I could spend three times as much time in organizing it as actually writing things down. So I said, oh, just do an A to Z index. And I found a page where somebody had listed about 500 pages of instructions and guidance and stuff, but not quite in the same fashion, so I sorted that as a starting point. And the index now is it's about 2,500 entries. It's with all the topics and subtopics, maybe 3,000 lines. Of, it's huge, and it's not complete, but those are, if you use the index, you can find just about anything about how to do something on Wikipedia. So that's all that that index is? There's 3,000 items just on how to accomplish various tasks on Wikipedia? 1,000 pointers to policies, guidelines, instruction pages, tutorials, tools, uh, user scripts you can use to enhance your browser. Yeah, there's 2,500 things that you, in theory, should read in order to know everything there is to know about Wikipedia. And I haven't read all of them, but I've read enough of those to at least put them in the right place in the index. Astonishing, really. And how did you get involved with Wikipedia in the first place? Um, you know, I, I don't remember what my very first edit is, although I remember my first impassioned edit. It had to do with George Bush's military service. Because <laughs> um, I know something about the military and about finance records, and when some of his stuff started popping up in the summer of 2004, I said, you know, I think I can understand this and contribute to it. And it turned out there were a whole bunch of other editors who were working that same article, and I came kind of a little bit late and didn't know the rules and got beaten up a little bit, not too badly. Um, and then I didn't do too much until... 2006, my wife took a new job in Washington, D.C., 
we were living in Seattle, and so I came to the D.C. area and had some time because I was looking for a job. So I started getting involved in editing political articles, congressional articles. You may or may not remember back in 2006 there were all these scandals involving Republican Congress folk. Sure. And um, so I thought, you know, these should be in the Wikipedia articles. And then I discovered, well, if you just put them in negative information, it doesn't really look, it looks like an attack piece. And that's unfair. So I started writing complete biographies, which would take me almost a day, at least a half a day, per congressman, congresswoman. Uh, Person. And then I was doing other things as well. So that was how I spent a lot of 2006 while I was unemployed. And that, that's all voluntary, right? Everything's voluntary. That's what I thought. So all of these people who are doing all of this effort, what, what do you perceive uh, to be the motivation? Is it simply uh, doing something well, participating in a larger effort, being a part of, I don't want to put words in your mouth, what, what do you see as the underlying motivation? I think that's a large part of it. Um, there are certainly people who go on to write an article about themselves or about their company, um, but a lot of them it's about their favorite band or the television episodes they watch. Um, unfortunately, not enough people who really want to write about hard science, and actually, surprisingly, very few people who want to write about business. Uh, business articles, just a huge companies and um, interesting business episodes, just a huge weakness. But uh, some, a lot of it is because, yeah, I mean, why would you be an administrator on Wikipedia and fight vandals and delete pages and do all of this kind of boring, mundane stuff that if you weren't really feeling like you were contributing to a greater good? Now, how do you feel about the different reports? Um, th there have been different debates about what percentage of the contributors to Wikipedia actually contribute what percentage of the content? Is that anything you've gotten involved in or, or formed an opinion on? I mean, so I, I guess I should just clarify for listeners, uh, there have been claims that, for example, 1% of Wikipedians author more than half of the content of Wikipedia. Uh, there's, there's some com you know, debate, I guess, about whether edits of punctuation and, and deletions are as important as edits of creation and adding new content. Um, is, that, is that something that you've gotten into at all? Well, I mean, the question is how much of that's actionable. I mean, part of it is sort of like what difference does it make? There's such a huge amount of work that still needs to be done. It's kind of, okay, if there's 1% of the people that are doing half the work, that's great. Um, it's not like anybody's being stopped from, from working on Wikipedia. It's not like that 1% is somehow monopolizing the conversation. There's 2 million articles. I mean, and so it's interesting to me. I, I think the 1% changes from month to month, um, but I, I don't think in the long run it actually drives anything. The, it was interesting because that... That, that figure popped up recently in a Salon article when it talked about Wikipedia and also about Dig. Right. And I thought that was an interesting comparison because Dig's kind of a zero-sum game. If, if my article was, moves up to the top, the article I like moves up to the top, something else moves to, toward the bottom. With Wikipedia, if I do a phenomenal job and really improve an article, 
it doesn't negatively impact anything. So right. The, the way to increase the 1% then, assuming even if it is 1%, is just for more people to jump in. It, it's yeah. Expand it that way. Yeah. And so it's, it, it's kind of like, you know, there's the, the 1%, they don't spend their time blocking other people or reverting other people. They spend their time um, full-time, I don't know, uh, researching stuff, adding words, uh, wordsmithing, whatever. But... I mean, there's still a huge number of people who contribute in a little ways and the encyclopedia gets built. Right. I mean, 2,267,616 articles in English. I should clarify that I'm saying that at 9.36 p.m. <laughs> uh, because that's likely to change pretty quickly. It's, a, it's an astonishing accomplishment, the whole thing. And for all of the talk... Yeah, you get a lot of backlash, and and uh, even even among our editors, we have close to 20 editors. All of our articles are are edited prior to publication, and a number of them are are, are kind of anti, or at least predisposed to be anti Wikipedia. Like, in other words, you know, oh well, citing Wikipedia is is certainly not, um, you know, necessarily a viable source. Blah 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 blah. But I mean, I use it all the time, and it's not just because. I have such a good article about me in there. <laughs> right. Well, I, and I think it's worth noting that the show notes for this page at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, um, the, the links for uh, this book, Wikipedia, The Missing Manual, and for the next author we're going to speak to are, are linked to Amazon. But Deborah Gibson's name is actually linked to her Wikipedia page. Because, because yeah, for there you can get to everything else. So that that's that seemed like what you're right saying thing. about entertainment. It, it was it really struck me though because that really is where you find just exhaustive information. And I probably am not looking at it in some of these other areas, science and business. You know where I might use other resources. But being that a lot of my research and a lot of stuff I'm thinking about and and looking into and you know. Uh, am concerned with on a day-to-day basis is somehow or another entertainment related or or internet entertainment or internet and and those seem to be exceptionally exceptionally well covered there i mean it gets so granular i mean you know it's not just that you have a a, a tv series but there'll be an entry on an episode of a an article an article on each episode that's correct i i was i was watching american idol last year uh, one year ago perhaps this very night and um, someone began to sing a song on, it might have been 60s night or something like that, and I thought to myself, hey, I- I'm going to look up something about that song. And by the time I could type in the name of the song, the article about that song had been updated to reflect that someone had sung it on American Idol on that very date. I mean, the song wasn't even over yet. The, the level of detail on entertainment subjects is truly astonishing. And it's a, a little bit of a source of friction because Wikipedia is sort of based on sources and verifiable sources, sources you can cite, sources that people can look up and check. And then you get all of this fiction stuff where you you read an article and will say, how do you know that? Well, because I watched the show. Right. And you can watch it too on YouTube. And it's on one hand hard to argue with that, but on the other hand, it's not what we call verification in the in the in the sense of normal sense of the word, and I I'm what's called an inclusionist. I think those articles are fine. I I don't work on them myself, but there are 
there's a small subset of people who think that anything that's fiction maybe should be rolled off to another wiki somewhere. Now, that brings up a really good point that I, I noticed just kind of anecdotally, partly when I was trying to, to beef up mine. That I didn't write mine, but I did edit it, and it kind of ended up rewriting it because there was stuff in there that just wasn't true. And then people started uh, saying that I was related to the Olsen twins and to uh, uh, the Olsen from the Brady Bunch, Susan Olsen, and all this other stuff that was just flat-out false. So I do have to go back and look at it periodically and... Make sure no one's added anything. You know, I've, I've seen the Olsen twins added in about five times now. I've had to go back in and and edit them out. Their uncle. But anyway, what it brought up was just just what you were saying uh, about having an internet reference seems to really be the coin of the realm. So the people who lose out, and I noticed this because I was encouraging one of my friends here in Cleveland, who's been a writer for the Plain Dealer. And, and, and a personality. He's been a columnist, uh, you know, for years and years and years. Very well known. He puts out books. Uh, Cleveland-based publisher. They they uh, box up collections of his columns and they sell very well. And he's he's quite well known. And his family's actually quite well known. So I was saying, man, you gotta you sh- you of all people, you know, should have a your own entry here. And okay, here's how you do it. And and the problem was he had all of these references and all these books and all this stuff in the paper, but but it wasn't online. You see, it's, yeah. it existed in the the real world, you know. And then I I found that myself because some of my references and why I I thought I should be in there. The the person who wrote the original article was just kind of focusing purely on on blog critics and the fact that I was the you know publisher founder blah blah blah, but. You know, I thought that my background was was equally important. I've I've written two books, two and a half books, two two that are out in in the real world, and um, uh, and done a lot of other media stuff. But you know, there was no way that I could find I couldn't find a single reference to uh, on on the internet to my television or radio work, which is like twenty years worth. You know, there's just no reference on the internet about. Uh, you know, because it's not really historically kept. The media, that the electronic media, at least until recently, until until all the the radio stations and TV stations had their own sites and, and and started you know updating them regularly and maintaining them. They've all had sites for a while, but it's only fairly recently that they've really done much with them. Um, you know, there's just there was no record of these things, and and I found it really interesting that you could have a really quite extensive media background. But if it was prior to, you know, the mid to late 90s, you just don't exist on the Internet. Right. There isn't a requirement that you actually have a link to anything. You can, I mean, obviously a lot of articles cite books as their source, and books aren't, most books aren't available online. So books are perfectly excellent sources for information. Um but there is some people who think that if it doesn't have an online link, it's either uh, undesirable or just plain wrong, and they have to be told firmly, and it usually doesn't take very much to get them to understand they're wrong. Um, but it certainly makes it harder for people to look up and cite things. I mean, you really have to be dedicated to go to a library or work your way through LexisNexis if you have that access and find these things. But it definitely counts. It definitely counts to prove that you're notable enough to 
have an article. Well, that's good to hear. I, I, I think I faced, I think we were dealing with, you know, I don't know, one, one or more editors who were who were really leaning toward the Internet verification side of things. Eventually it all worked out. It was, it was you know, no problem, and, and things were considered, you know, well enough supported and, and all that. But um, I do think one of the challenges that, that first-time contributors to Wikipedia run into is not understanding the cite your sources issue. Um, we, I know we've had at least uh, at least one guest on the show, and I've run into it several times before, uh, not on the show, of people who are saying, for example, I'm the person in the article. I know X, Y, Z is not true because I lived it. And unfortunately, you, you know, and so they're saying, I go in and I, I edit my article and I say, you know, this isn't true, so I delete it, and then someone puts it back. How can they do that? I'm me. I, I'm, the, I'm the world's foremost authority on me. Um, and so what we've, what we've actually, I've gone in at least once and, and edited an article with a link to the show uh, archive to say such and such is not true. Uh, here's the link that, that proves it. It's the person speaking about it himself after it came up here on the show. That's a great point. The other, the other part of it is, is, yeah, I said that, but it was a joke. See, so it shows you, it, re- it really reveals a lot about how the Internet works. And I was going to say also just kind of to, the corollary to what I was just saying about you know referencing and whatnot, it's it's as if from the internet's point of view, it's as if the world came into being just a little over ten years ago. So nineteen ninety three, I remember it well. <laughs> so you know it's really interesting to see that you know just this full fruition and blossoming of of life. You know, it's just like the world was created approximately you know ten to fifteen years ago. And, uh, and and anything that went on before that, from the internet's perspective, is if not illegitimate, it's at least kind of has a, a lesser ontology. You know, it's not as real. It's not quite as real. And like you said, John, it takes a lot of effort to go, you know, find the book and track it down and all that. Whereas if you're used to dealing with the internet, I mean, what could be easier than just doing a quick search? You know, we all know how to Google, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and and that's it's become so ingrained. And and even people who who were doing research prior to the internet, you know, I'm I'm 49. I was I was working and 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 uh, I was a journalist and a writer and media guy, you know, 30 years ago. And so I, I was doing I, – I remember real research, but even I, you know, you just get so caught up in the habits of the Internet. And the way the Internet works has come to dominate, I guess, kind of all of media is what the point I'm trying to make and probably doing it circuitously. <laughs> well, we've actually, we've actually spent a lot of the time that we hope to talk with you about your book, John, uh, and we spent it talking about Wikipedia in general – but I, I suppose that gives people even more motivation then to go uh, to purchase your book. I hope people do because we need as many editors as we can. Um, there are things like the New York Times has put most of their archives going back into the 1800s online. That's a massively untapped source of information. Um, yeah, I, I hope the book is successful because if it is, uh, that makes Wikipedia is going to be more successful. I think it's an excellent book. I, I got a copy of it. It's part of the O'Reilly uh, Pogue Press series and the the Missing Manual series. And uh, I I uh, you know did not read it. I have a chance to read it cover to cover. Just got it recently. But I, I certainly looked through it with great interest. And uh, it's it's really interesting. I you know stopped and 
and read several sections of it, and it's very thorough, it's easy to read, it's very applicable to uh, Wikipedia itself, which is, of course, what it's all about. And, yeah, I mean, we really hope it does very, very well. Do you have any indication? Has it looks like it's been very well received. Yeah, it was a great review in the New York Review of Books. I saw that, yes. That was that was super good. So we shall see. All right, well, good luck with it, and congratulations on it. It's, uh, it's a major undertaking, and, and you did it very well. Appreciate it. Well, John Broughton's book, Wikipedia, The Missing Manual, is available now. You will find a link on the show page at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. You can jump right over to Amazon and buy yourself a copy. We urge you to do so this very evening or whenever you're hearing this show. Thanks again for spending time with us. Thank you for inviting me. And Eric, over to you. All right. Well, uh, as as usual, we we uh, we're always pressed here at the end, and we only have 12 minutes, so we're gonna have to bring Carlo back. Uh, I'm not gonna get into a long, long intro because of the time frame. But Carlo Wolf is a really good friend of mine. He, uh, as as Philip mentioned earlier, he was the co-editor on our huge mammoth three-year endeavor, the Encyclopedia of Record Producers. I really got to know him well then. That was in the late 90s. The book came out in 99. He's been a revered, very well-known music writer, primarily music writer for, for 35 years at least. And in the Cleveland area, he's written for literally every publication. And he writes regularly still for the Boston Globe, Fort Worth Star-Telegram, Chicago Sun-Times, and, and the plain dealer. He does book reviews, essays, on and on and on and on. In the real world, uh, he is the uh, features editor for Lodging Hospitality, a Penton Media magazine. And he wrote a book that came out last year. This shows you, I've talked about it from time to time, how poorly I've been doing about writing because as the uh, administrative work has just become greater and greater and greater here, it's the, it's the classic story, you know, don't succeed, quote unquote, because you won't get to do whatever it is you like to do anymore. Uh, and uh, But anyway, I still have a review. It's literally 90% written, but I haven't published it yet of Cleveland Rock and Roll Memories, which is Carlo's book that he put together on his own, uh, based here in Cleveland, Gray and Company, and it is a really great book. Obviously, if you're interested in Cleveland and Cleveland history, it is very germane, but beyond that, it really is an amazing microcosm of a music scene. So if you're interested in music and the development of, of uh, you know pop and rock history, it's really interesting simply to see how a scene came together. Carlo, are you there? I am here, Eric. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm okay. I'm sitting in my chair with my book in front of me and uh, eager to talk to you. A fine book it is. Yeah, we're going to have to have you back on again, but we can certainly uh, try to squeeze in as much as we can. No problem. How, how did the... What, why don't you give us a little uh, a, a structure of the book? It's real interesting the way you... Uh, it's not just you doing narrative. You basically wrote it in, in interview form. Why don't you tell right. us a little bit about that and how that came together? Well, I was, <clears throat> I've written hundreds of reviews and seen too many bad bands. And uh, about three years ago, I decided I wanted to do something a little bit more permanent and approached David Gray, the publisher here, and we hashed it over and came up with this idea of a nostalgia book about the glory days of Cleveland rock and roll. Now, I'm not from Cleveland. I've only been here 21 years, so I'll never be a native. But I knew a lot of people from reviewing shows in Cleveland, 
And basically, I leveraged my network, and I interviewed over 100 people. And what I put together, finally, was their stories, their memories, and I kind of backstopped it with a backbone of narrative, putting it into historical perspective. And I divided it into various categories, like clubs, local scenes, big acts, small acts, in the trenches, underground, overground. What I really wanted to do was get a, develop a snapshot of the texture of the time. So it really ends up being a kind of social history, aside from being a lot of anecdotes. Yeah, and it does it really well, and it's extremely readable. It's also graphically very okay. satisfying. Um, there's there's pictures on every page, and and it's not just illustrations or whatever. But I mean, you got you put together an amazing assortment of original photographs. You have all kinds of memorabilia. Uh, you know, pictures of t- of, of uh, tickets, concert tickets, and uh, all kinds of artists, and and uh, and all of that. So graphically, it's also really interesting. Well, it was uh, really fun to put together because, in in many cases, or at least in a couple of cases, I would meet people, and their stories weren't that good, but their memorabilia were unbelievable. I mean, they would have boxes of stuff. I know this one woman woman I met on the west side of Cleveland. Her attic is just, it's like a picture of the underground. Wow. And posters from, from, the, from the great days of Cleveland's underground and an immaculate record collection. Who would have thought? It's great. Now here... People keep their stuff. I'm sure you do. I did till, of course, my fire of, uh, at college of uh, 1970, I don't know what it was, okay. seven or eight. Uh-huh. And I had a lot of st- I don't know why. Why did I have all my stuff with me down at school? I guess comfort, you know, whatever. Right. But I had a lot of stuff with me, and um, that whole room burned. I lost my whole first record collection. There was oh, like 2,000 records that I was only, you know, 18 or something, uh, 19 maybe. And Well, now you can buy them back on eBay. Oh, well, sure, sure. And uh, I, I, the next day I found many of my half-charred record covers floating about the campus. Oh, no. Oh, it was just insane. It, it, was... is, it is the second to low point of my life, my first being the divorce. But uh, it, was, it was horrifying, you know, just to lose everything. But, yeah, I did. I had a lot of stuff that was lost. I have a really good friend, and I think what, what we should do is set up another show here down the line a little bit. And and remember uh, my friend who contacted you, Buck McWilliams, sure. about the book. And sure. I hadn't talked to him in years, so that was right. that was so great that you hooked me up with him. Well, it's funny how the book sort of generated it. It, it became viral. I would talk to one person, and they would say, "You got to talk to so and so," you know. And some of the people I met, I met one guy. One of my favorite, some of my favorite stories in the book are from a basically from a bar band drummer. You know, whom I met one afternoon, spoke to for about four hours, and his stories just wrote themselves. Which one was he? Dale Flanagan. And what bands was he in? He was in, oh God, I'm blanking out now, it's terrible. He's got a picture in the book of the drum god. Okay, and I'm going to see. I'll find him. Here it is, here it is, I found it. Uh, He was in Dragonwick. Oh, Dragonwick, sure, sure, sure. And his stories were just. I mean, the guy can tell great stories. And since that time, I've found out more about him, and maybe that'll surface somewhere else. 
Interesting. Oh yeah. So in, in the course of all this, uh, there's kind of two there's two things that come to my mind. First of all, I'm really curious to find out that you, I, you were kind of making a joke, half making a joke that you've only been here 21 years, so of course you'll never be a native. But you know you've seen a lot of it yourself firsthand. Right. But right. you know a lot of the stories you tell of uh, 60s and 70s were were before you were here. What what really did you learn as far as what stands out in your mind, stuff that you just didn't know or didn't realize or didn't have a, a comprehension of in the course of doing the book? What, what did you learn about you know, Cleveland music, the history of Cleveland music, the bands, the, all of that, that really stands out in your mind? Well, I learned that, that Cleveland, you know, I, one of the reasons I was interested in writing this kind of book was I couldn't figure out how one area could produce both Pierre Ubu and the Raspberries. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I say that in my introduction. It's because my first contact with Cleveland rock was Perubu in upstate New York in in 1978. That's the first Cleveland so-called Cleveland sound I ever. For those who aren't aware, we're talking about really quite acerbic art rock. Oh yeah. It's. I mean, it is definitively alternative. You know, it it's just not commercial. But, you know, the raspberries are the polar opposite. They are, I mean, go all the way. You can't get it out of your Quintessential power pop. Sure, sure. So I was really curious how that could be. And what I found in this, I sort of confirmed what I suspected, and that is that Cleveland's a whole bunch of different scenes, kind of like their, like its ethnic makeup. Ah. Okay? So you can point. have literally one band in one house playing a completely different kind of music from the band in the next house, and they don't even know each other exists. It's bizarre. It's very siloed. It's very... There's no real cohesiveness to the scene. Balkanization. Right. It is Balkan. It's a Balkan scene. That doesn't mean it's not creative, but it does mean that it doesn't present a united front, so it can't be commercialized very well. There are a few common entities, though. You know, you loosely you had, of course, WMMS, which I right. think is why it was so held so close to people's bosom because it did serve somewhat as a well, it was a community common between, denominator between MMS, Belkins, and Agora. Exactly. In the mid say those next in the mid seventies, when rock and roll also was at its height, you could argue. I mean, one. I'm talking in my book I talk about rock and roll as a as a young industry that on its way to maturity. Okay? And by the end of the eighties I think we'll agree that rock and roll was pretty matured. It was pretty corporate. Oh yeah. Okay? Absolutely. And in Cleveland in the mid seventies it wasn't quite corporate yet. It was all co promoted. Right. Okay, and there's a difference. It the other question which which leads to which is led to by, by what you just said, all very interesting, is Clevelanders have this image that the history of Cleveland music is somehow special and magical and that's you know why the Rock Hall is here and right. Alan Freed, MMS and all that. Having done all that research, as well as having lived here, as well as being a great musical critical mind, music critical mind, what is your final assessment on the history, the place of Cleveland Rock? Uh, 
I think it's important. I think it's important almost more commercially than culturally. I think that it was instrumental in the development of radio and the development of top 40 and all, all and sort of underground FM radio and uh, I, d- I don't think of many bands from here as being in the top rank okay there are very few of them although there were a couple like James Gang is really good Raspberries is really good Ubu Michael Stanley at times okay but I don't think of it. I, I don't think of it along the same lines as say the San Francisco explosion in the '60s, or even Boston in the '60s, '70s, and '80s. I mean, remember in in the late '70s, Boston generated the Cars, for example. You know, and there's never been a band that big out of here, as far as I can tell. Honestly. I, I agree entirely. I, I think. It's I mean, a, I don't mean to downgrade the place. I don't either. And and by doing the book, I, I one thing I felt very deeply was I wish I'd been here. Yeah. Because it sounds like it was great. I was well, here in the seventies. We moved here in seventy two, and I I was in college by seventy five. So that's right. not really being here. I was down at Wittenberg, and so I was I was only here some of the time, but. Um, I, I really did see some of how all of that came together, and, and well, your story about the Springsteen. Yeah, I love no, that. I appreciate fabulous. it deeply. Thanks. You wrote it up really well. I appreciate well, being asked. Great and, story. Uh, well, thanks. It was fun. It was really fun to talk about. It was it was sure. through the story that you, you hooked me back up with with uh, with the buck. Well, so we are we are actually past the ten o'clock deadline. We're about a minute or two past. Okay. Uh, this does stay recorded, so we are actually being recorded for cool. the. Uh, archive, so so it's not as though we will just suddenly drop off the face of the earth, but we are not on live anymore. So okay. uh, what we should do, though, is since this was so brief, is let us reconvene here in a couple months. I'd love and, that, and I will get Bucky. I can't. I, I, That'd be great. I will get Buck, not Bucky, uh, who's had a who's been a radio professional his whole life. Okay. Uh, all this time, in the meantime. Okay. And he's back here in Cleveland. Wow, that's unusual. Yeah, I know he's back here, uh, and What's so let's let's uh, have get us together, and maybe one other person, maybe someone else from the book, and and just really do a show on it and do it upright and really talk about it. And it'll really, it'll be that it'll would, be fun for us. <laughs> that would that would really be fun, Eric. I, I don't know about anyone else, but it'll be fun for us. Do you, have, do you get feedback? Oh yeah. What do people say about blog rate? Where do I get? Email me again. How to get to this? Okay, okay, yeah, it's it's just a URL. It's okay. you know, and then it's it's available. Uh, it's about an hour or so after the show. This was all live. Uh, it's being recorded while it's live, and about an hour or somewhere in that range after the show's over, uh, after we hung, hang up, it becomes available for download, and you can either stream it or or uh, download it like uh, like a podcast. Right. Right. In fact, uh, this is Philip here. As uh, I've been really quiet. You have been. <laughs> as, as part of the outro, I, I normally give uh, mention the link that people can go to to download the episode and, and listen to it later. So you'll be able to do that. And of Great. course, we will also email it to you. Okay. Yeah. So let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap up. We missed the uh, we missed the fade out music. It got kind of loud. Well, there, we heard it. We heard it. We, but we, we chose to through, ignore it. So that's good. Right. <laughs> well, thank you again to Carlo Wolf. Uh, it's been a pleasure listening to you tonight. Well, great. Thanks. And, and thanks also to John Broughton and to Deborah Gibson from earlier. 
please right. do visit the show page at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. And, Carlo, that's the Earl you're looking for, blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Uh, you'll find links to Carlo Wolf's book, Cleveland Rock and Roll Memories, to John Brothen's book, Wikipedia, The Missing Manual, and uh, also visit DebraGibson.com. That's D-E-B-O-R-A-H-Gibson.com. Okay. This has been BC Radio Live. We broadcast live every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, so be sure to visit us live to participate in the chat room and watch the live video feed. If you missed the live broadcast, audio archives are available online, or you can subscribe to the podcast to have BC Radio Live, BC Radio Live delivered to you each week. Until next week, aloha!